It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. But it isn't just slowing down. It's doing what you both were talking about. It's balancing those tensions with the understanding that hearing each other out and really listening and trying to address the concerns that people bring to the table actually creates better decisions that will have longer lasting impact and be more acceptable to more people in the country because you've really taken into account so many different perspectives. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. On today's episode, we are so excited to share our interview with Senator Maggie Hassan that we just did while we were in New Hampshire before We share that with everybody. We are going to tackle a couple headlines that are becoming increasingly filled with presidential nominees. So we'll be tackling two of those. And then to close out the show, instead of sharing what's on our mind outside of politics, we're actually going to share the Q&A from our event with Maggie Hassan. It was such a good question, such a good conversation. We wanted to share that with you. 
We also want to make sure that you guys are having your own discussions this week because it is the National Week of Conversation. If you share your stories of having conversations with the hashtag listen first, you'll be connected with people all over the country having discussions about politics and important values in their lives. There are no special instructions here. You just got to talk to people. And we know that you all are experts at doing that. So share those stories with the hashtag listen first just to bring awareness to this great effort put on by the National Conversation Project. Beth? My feelings about Joe Biden have not shifted. I'm hearing from you that yours have shifted a little bit based on his own personal reaction and behavior recently. When we talked on Friday, I had a lot more grace for Joe Biden than I have today. (laughs) He used it all up. (laughs) Well, so I said Friday that to me, this is a test of his leadership and his willingness to learn. And now that he is out on the what seems to be the campaign trail, the unofficial campaign trail, since he still hasn't announced his intentions – I don't like that he is repeating the same joke over and over that this person gave me permission to hug him or whatever. He's Mm -hmm. done that several times now. And I just don't think that you can be in a space of learning when you're in a space of defensiveness. And that's what that joke is to me. It's defensiveness. It's deflection. It's making light of a situation that is not at an 11 on a scale of seriousness, but is serious. And we should care about and have a reasonable conversation about. And I don't think it's funny. And I don't think this is a good approach if he wants to show that he truly is going to pay more attention to how people feel about him. So... Yeah, Joe Biden has moved down on my grace meter. I'm trying to decide how he can handle those moments when he is hugging people. Or if he should just, I don't know, back Be off cool. for a week or two. I mean, I think he should just just keep doing what he's doing. The point is not don't ever hug anyone again. Yeah, but it's going to be weird if he hugs people now. You don't think? I think it gets weirder when he makes this joke every Let time. me rephrase. It's weird when he hugs people in front of cameras now. Like, not in his personal life, but like, and he's on the campaign trail with this current news cycle, obsessed with his personal boundaries and his sort of physical boundaries with people on the campaign trail. All eyes are going to be trained on those interactions. And so he risks hugging. I can't believe I'm freaking defending Joe Biden right now. If he hugs somebody and doesn't say anything, then it becomes, did he ask permission? So I'm wondering if just, Recently, you know, in the just near recent future for the next couple of weeks, he just maybe backs up on the hugging. I think this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> I mean, I think you can tell when someone is responding enthusiastically or not, you know, and, and he just this just doesn't need to be an all or nothing kind of situation. I get that people are still going to write these stories and take these pictures. And they're going to make montages and it's going to suck for him. But part of his opportunity is to to say, it kind of sucks for me. And when those questions are out there, then he can say, actually, I had a conversation with this person beforehand because mm-hmm. I learned something. And I learned that my style does work in a modern world, but I have to be more explicit in getting people's permission. Like, that's how well, he Well, that's what get... he's trying to do. He's just doing it with a joke. But doing it with a joke, I think, is the problem, right? Because that undermines the people who've brought this to his attention before, mm-hmm. right? That makes them the joke. He's not willing to do the hard work. He's right. not willing to be the vulnerable person. And be the joke. So he's deflecting with those people. So. That is my that's my issue with him right now. Again, I like Joe Biden. I'm not mad at him on a grand scale. I don't think he's the worst human being ever, but I don't like the way he's handling this. I do not think he's the worst person ever. 
I am mad at him because I don't think he should be running for president. So here's the other thing that we need to talk about with this because we had listeners ask this question. Some of the conversation after you and I talked on Friday shifted to should women have to call him out instantly? Is there a problem with waiting a couple of years to write about this? What's the responsibility of a woman in this situation? I have feelings about that. I imagine that you do too. Yeah, none. Good talk. Uh, No, no one holds any responsibility to educate Joe Biden in that moment, period, full stop. I think that this is going to shift over time, right? As this conversation ripens and matures, yes, I think women will have a responsibility to say, that that bugs me. Can you knock it off? Can you stop? But I think acting like that was true a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. really ignores all the work and the progress that's been made around the Me Too conversation. You know, the, the landscape is changing. And I also think that what responsibility you have and when you have it depends so much on the relationship and the context and the relative power dynamics in that situation. Everybody wants like a checklist of ideas that keep them out of trouble in these situations. There's just not one. It's too complicated for that. Yeah, there's no one size fits all for that particular calculus does every situation like that present an opportunity to educate to share your perspective to widen people's perspectives yes but not everybody has to take that opportunity it's not a responsibility it's just an opportunity there's no duty for one class of people to educate another class of people i don't feel like and i think when you sort of again it's the the classic are we trying to shame people into action or inspire them to action and the second you make it you have to do this it's your your you need to educate men i mean i can just feel my shoulders tighten you know what i actually think this is where tort law offers some useful principles Mm -hmm. not a thing i say very often Mm -hmm. but in tort law one of the first things you learn is that in most scenarios you have no duty to act But if you're going to act, you have to act reasonably. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of it. You have no duty to call somebody out on this. But if you do, then you want to be thoughtful about how you do it so that they're able to hear you. And then another concept from tort law that I think is helpful here is it sounds kind of pejoratively named, but go with me. The eggshell plaintiff rule. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the eggshell plaintiff. the snowflake plaintiff. (laughs) The the idea of the eggshell plaintiff is that you take your plaintiff as you find them. And so if I um, hit you on the street, right – I have to accept if you have a condition that makes my hit land on you in a way that's more damaging than if I hit somebody who didn't have your condition, right? Mm -hmm. And so if the damage that I cause you with my punch is much greater than it would be to just any other person. It was an eggshell. It's it's still my problem, right? I caused that damage. And just because I think the damage is like way out there. So my point is – that is think, not a concept that exists in everyday society. It's all about your motive and we don't care how the other person – we found the other person. I think the eggshell plaintiff would be a good concept for mm-hmm. everyday society where we say like I didn't intend it to land this way. And you but say sorry because of my life experiences and where I am right now and where you are right now. That's how it landed. And so we got to have this conversation. Also, side note, we teach our kids that. We definitely expect our kids to behave like that. We just don't want other adults to expect us to behave like that. 100%. Other big story right now is that Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen resigned. What's weird to me about this story, which everybody I'm sure has heard ad nauseum by the time this podcast is airing, is that Kirsten Nielsen's people, I guess, put into the media stream that she was going into the White House to have a meeting about what is needed at the border to fix this situation. And the president's people put into the media stream that she was coming to get fired. And I feel like she's kind of gone out of her way 
to sound like someone who got fired, which is an unusual scenario. Mm -hmm. And what it makes me wonder about is what is coming next? Was yeah. she is she trying to tell America that she was working hard to stay in her position to stop whatever is coming next? I don't mean to be like a conspiracy theorist, but this is weird, right? You don't need to. The reporting is saying that Stephen this is Stephen Miller and he's exerting his the full force of his influence inside the White House, particularly with regards to immigration. He's looking to be more hard-edged about immigration and, and sort of bring the administration along with him. Finally, that's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, I think that that's the reporting out there, and it's also terrifying. He terrifies me. I don't know why he's still there. The country would be better off if Stephen Miller was the one being fired, and I don't even like Kirsten Nielsen. Stephen Miller is like the beatings will continue until morale improves guy, too, mm-hmm. because what this administration is trying to do on immigration is so obviously ineffective. And every time they learn it's ineffective, they're like, you know, let's what? double down. Let's do it a little. We harder. didn't do it enough. Let's do it more. That will fix it. Oh, it's the worst. And it forces us into this terrible scenario where you have people who are sympathetic to asylum seekers basically saying, fine, let's just have no process then. You know what I mean? Because right now we're at a place where the policies enacted by this administration have failed so terribly that we have created a crisis around our system. When when the president tweets the country is full, well, Bless. that's ridiculous. But here's what's true. The detention centers are full. The detention mm-hmm. centers are full because we have done a miserable job with this issue. And the, the fix to that is not let's have no process then, right? Like that's going to land us in a terrible 2020. We do not want a 2020 election where one party says it's fine, whatever. And the other party is saying let's lock everybody up. There, there's a way forward here, America. But that's not the way that, – that's not what Trump is looking for. Stephen Miller is going to say, you know what, let's just close the border off then. I mean, as though that's a thing. It's not a thing. Mitch McConnell's definitely not going to be let it be a thing. I was just thinking, though, when you said the word detention centers and how I just have such a visceral reaction to that and how, though, the reality is I didn't really even know we had detention centers before 2016 or maybe even before 2017. So the entire story is that for better or for worse, we all are much more aware of our current immigration system, where it's failing, where it's full, where it's under a great amount of pressure. And my desperate optimistic hope is that because we are all more aware of the real boots on the ground reality. Now, are all, do all of us have a complete picture of what's happening on the border? No, you can't have a complete picture of what's happening on the border until you go to the border, which I have not done. But I do think that everybody has a fuller picture of the system and its failings and the pressures. And maybe just maybe that could lead to a better conversation surrounding immigration with the 2020 presidential campaign. And look, it's a really complicated problem because I always hear myself advocating for aid in the Northern Triangle. Let's try to fix the situation in these countries so that we take pressure off of our asylum system. That's not easy. And that's the kind of intention that has led to lots of American soldiers being killed in foreign countries trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to pretend that anything about this is easy. What I think is obvious is that this administration's approach hasn't worked. And just doing the same thing in crueler terms isn't going to get us there. But that seems to be their only strategy, especially if Stephen Miller's steering the ship. Okay. Speaking of crueler terms, the last thing we want to talk about is Sarah's favorite candidate name to pronounce, Pete Buttigieg. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, he's not my favorite candidate. No, he's winning your pronunciation primary. But I do love to say Buttigieg. And now my four-year-old says Buttigieg really well. I also have this weird tick where my brain wants to like sing 
about Pete Buttigieg, but yes. He made a lot of news this weekend talking to Chuck Todd about his sexuality and his morality and his understanding of the church, which has led to, because again, we can't have nice things, full-on Twitter controversy about Episcopalians of all things. And Sarah— Well, back up. First say what he said. He told Chuck Todd that if people have a problem with his sexuality, they have a problem with his creator, not with him. And that was the problem with the Mike Pences of the world. So that's what started this. And he also said that he is frustrated with evangelicals supporting the president because he sees such hypocrisy in that. Which then led Eric Erickson, I cannot believe I'm uttering his name on this podcast, to write about how there is hypocrisy in the Buttigieg position and in the entire concept of like progressive Christianity because he then was asked a question about abortion and of course said that there's an ethical issue and there's a legal issue and we can't legislate morality. And Eric Erickson says, there you go. See, you want the parts of the Bible that you like, not the parts that you don't. And this is a story as old as time and we're never going to stop having this conversation. specific insult towards Episcopalians. He said that Episcopalians have a shallow understanding. How dare you, sir? How dare you, sir? One of the oldest Christian denominations in the nation. How dare you? <laughs> Sarah has said how dare you about 20 times today just about this story. In the last like I'm hour so and a half. I'm so angry. Okay, so here is this is this is classic. This is so classic. I don't even know where to begin. My immediate response is, no, a shallow understanding of Christianity is based on rules and morality rules regarding sexuality, and a deeper, much harder understanding of Christianity is based on love your enemy and extend kindness to others and love the other as yourself. So first of all, that's my that's a that's a beef that I have generally with the the way that this debate breaks down. Now, I don't I understand his general point about, oh, you just want to legislate morality that you like. My pushback to that is, no, when he says, <laughs> I mean, I think that for the most part, when a progressive is arguing, first of all, I love the idea that now progressives are like super religious and always arguing to legislate morality. That's that's a new one. But I think that what he's the nuance of that argument that he's missing is that that's not ever what progressives lean on, that we should care for the poor because it's the right thing to do, because it's the the moral thing to do. You more often hear when discussions around the social safety net is that it is the the more efficient way to care for people in a society. It's the more you hold off sort of when you when you spend on social safety net and you spend on education, you're preventing spending we're spending on the back end of the line. It's an investment. Like I don't, I don't feel. I don't think he's right that the the idea is that we are the number one motivation for legislating the social safety net or sort of care for the poor, which is something Buttigieg was talking about in this interview. Is morality? It's that it's a it's a better way for government to function. However, I have not heard the argument that the better sort of public policy outcomes come from legislating gay marriage or even, to be honest with you, from legislating abortion. In fact, they tried to present those arguments in the California Supreme Court case about all these sort of public policy justifications for preventing gay marriage and for preventing gay adoption. And they were not there. They did not exist. They were unconvincing and had bad science behind them. So, I mean, I think that that is, you know, falls apart pretty quickly with a little more poking. 
I think we're never going to stop arguing about you like this part of the Bible and not that part Mm -hmm. of the Bible in the Christian community. I think that when we do that, we are missing the point entirely, but it is a conversation that's going to go on forever. For me, the takeaway from this story is what a public service Pete and Chastin Buttigieg are doing just by putting themselves out in this light and by having these conversations. It really bothers me when we ask people to defend their own identities And I hate that it takes a gay man running for president to say things like this to make people reevaluate how they feel about marriage equality. But he is doing it and I think it is really effective. And I think that the fact that he's doing it and being from a small town in Indiana just makes an enormous difference. And I'm grateful to the two of them for what they're doing. Who are you going to compliment from the other side this week, Beth? I'm going to come back to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who I feel is just doing such a good job being a role model on leadership. She could be kind of like, woe is me. What am I to do now that my caucus has the power and a plurality of opinions? Hmm. And instead of that, I think she's really leaning into that. I loved she was quoted in Politico's playbook this morning as saying, yeah, we've got some folks with big Twitter followings, but like I have to worry about what can pass. Mm. And I like that she's just taking that head on instead of trying to be coy about it. And I think she's just a great role model for women in leadership positions. And I'm I am super impressed with her since she's become the speaker again. I don't really think Nancy Pelosi has woe is me in her her toolkit. It's just not a thing that she does. I don't think any woman who lasts as long as Nancy Pelosi Why? has lasted in leadership has that. And and that is hard. I mean, when you think about her staying power, it's remarkable. She's amazing. So because we're about to share our interview with Senator Maggie Hassan, I thought I would compliment Senator Joni Ernst, who has been working with Senator Hassan on Veterans Affairs, making sure that we do better by our veterans, particularly with regards to the VA. And man, I just love a I love a bipartisan woman team. I'm not trying to even lie. So as we're about to share our interview with Senator Maggie Hassan, I would like to extend a compliment to Senator Joni Ernst. You're about to hear a conversation with Senator Maggie Hassan that took place at South Church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This event was put on by River Run Bookstores and the New Hampshire Women's Foundation. It was a terrific audience of really smart, engaged people. And so you're going to hear us talk with Senator Hassan. And then after that, you will hear a little bit of the Q&A. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. 
big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So nobody in this room needs an introduction to your fabulous Senator Hassan, but we're going to give you one because the people listening to the podcast should get one. So you're the junior senator from New Hampshire. Elected in 2016 in a pretty intense, nationally watched election for sure, after serving as the New Hampshire governor from 2013 to 2017. And that is definitely the part of your biography we are really interested in because we think the aspect of being from the executive and moving into the legislative is just such a great idea. (laughs) Everyone should do it. So why don't you start out telling us about that? Of the two, which do you prefer? You don't have to answer that. I'm just kidding. No, but but I would love to hear about you. Like, what what are you finding to be different in the Senate versus your time as governor? Well, so first of all, uh, Sarah and Beth, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Good evening, everybody. And to listeners out there, we are in beautiful South Church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and everybody should come here. It's an extraordinary part of our state. And while you're here, you can travel up to the White Mountains and you can take in the whole state. So that's my plug for the Granite State, which where, by the way, we also do democracy better than anywhere else. Uh, So... um, So if people want to get a sense of what it's like to be in the middle of a historic, crowded primary, this is a pretty good place to be, too. And I want to thank Tom and River Run uh, Bookstore, as well as the Women's Foundation, too, for helping put this together. You know, the job of governor, put quickly, is to protect and love your state and everybody in it. And so's the job of senator with the understanding that what you're doing also has national implication and impact. In my case, and in New Hampshire's case, 
the two jobs feel more similar than they might in other places because the New Hampshire governorship is a consensus-building role. Uh, our founders didn't think much of executives. They were a little nervous about kings and royal governors. So they structured our state government so that the New Hampshire governor has an executive council, five elected people from five different districts in the state, who approve every contract the state enters into of about, depends on the period, but $10,000 or more. They confirm all the governor's nominees to the cabinet, uh, called commissioners, who have terms that are longer than the governor's. And as you may know, we have a legislature of 400 people, volunteers, and a state senate of 24. So a lot of the job as governor is really bringing people together, hearing people out, uh, trying to find that path that balances those tensions that you were talking about. I also had been in the state senate, so I had a sense there um, about what legislative work is like. The two jobs are different. Uh, there are certainly times, you know, I, I miss being home all the time. Um, my husband and son are anchored here in New Hampshire. Uh, my daughter's living down in D.C. right now. But I miss being here all the time. But I also have an opportunity now to take what I learned as governor, how things actually work on the ground, what the impact is like when you try to implement a piece of legislation. Um, and that's what I try to bring to the table in the Senate. Um, not surprisingly, you know, after the first small government shutdown that we had in 2018, a whole group of us got together to push to reopen government, about 30, 30 senators, both parties. And a very large portion of us were governors. And it was that sense that you, you can't let this go. You, we have a problem to solve. It's our responsibility to solve it. We got to get with the executive branch and figure out how to reopen government. And so I think it's a really important experience to have. Um, I've been just incredibly honored and privileged to be able to do both things. And to represent this state and the people of this state is just extraordinary. I got to believe the six-year term is better than the two-year term, though. Well, that would be true. Yes. Yeah. As a person who served in a two-year term, I would definitely see that. So, first in the nation primary, every single one of your Democratic colleagues is running for president. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that I way. I mean, so I just, we're totally fascinated by what that must be like for you. Are you letting them stay in your guest room? Like, how are you keeping them? How are you giving them insider tips? Like, I just can't fathom what that's like. We had a pretty good series of St. Patrick's Day's jokes about this. Um, <laughs> but uh, we are working all the time in the Senate to be respectful of each other in all the many different roles that people play. And we are really lucky as Democrats to have a robust group running right now who have a range of experiences, a range of perspectives. Uh, they're offering different focuses. And they are letting people hear and think about different ways we may be able to move forward in this country and come together. And so it's a real honor to watch them do all of that. Uh, I have been saying to all of them, uh, I want to make sure we roll out the welcome mat as well as we can, and I'm happy to be a sounding board. And it's been really exciting to watch my colleagues, both governors who I worked with as well as um, senators, 
absolutely fall in love with our state. I get phone calls and texts now all the time going, oh my God, I did this there and it was so great. And I just love that. Yeah. On the other side of the aisle where no one is running for president, um, (laughs) there's a a lot of time to think about how we use procedures in the Senate to get things done the way we want them done. Not we, but they we. I would like for them to come closer to me. Maybe someday. So, yes. So I want to ask you about that process and and what you think the most important things procedurally happening in the Senate are right now and where you'd like to see. We could use the language of restoration of norms or or whatever you think, but I want to know how the Senate can work better again. Well, thank you for that. Uh, And one of the discussions that I think is relevant to some of tonight's program, given that the Women's Foundation is one of the sponsors here, is a real discussion about the importance of diversity and different perspectives in groups like the United States Senate. And I think, you know, we are now a historic 25 of 100 of us are women, but I think it's fair to say that the women of the United States Senate think we could have some more women and that it might help us restore and or modernize procedures in the Senate with the goal of respecting the norms that have historically made the Senate the place where we slow down a little bit. But it isn't just slowing down. It's doing what you both were talking about. It's balancing those tensions with the understanding that hearing each other out and really listening and trying to address the concerns that people bring to the table actually creates better decisions that will have longer lasting impact and be more acceptable to more people in the country because you've really taken into account so many different perspectives. We are, I am concerned, I'm a new senator, I've just been there two years. We don't legislate a lot. We've been having a dispute, debate within the Senate about the process needed to confirm the administration's nominees, both cabinet, sub-cabinet, and to the courts. And there is real concern that some of the things that have happened this week uh, in particular mean that we are making very, very quick decisions about people who have lifetime appointments to the court. There have been several instances over the last two years where the Republicans have had a majority. Uh, They had decided to go to just a 50-vote threshold for judges. And even though there was initial consensus among Republicans that they were all going to vote for a nominee, when we had at least 30 hours of time between their nomination hitting the floor and the vote, there were a few judges who were vetted a little bit more and actually some Republicans said, well, wait wait a minute, now that I've, I'm not on judiciary, I didn't hear the hearing, I didn't see all the files, now that I'm reading this, I don't think I can. I think that's important. And so um, there is frustration right now, at least I'm frustrated because I think we are politicizing some of this process, and I know that the Republicans have a view about the idea that it started with Democrats when Democrats were in control, so 
you know, I'm sorry to everybody who sometimes thinks they're watching children fight um, because, you know, one's, one group says it's their fault and the other group says you started it. And I feel like a parent just wanting to cook dinner and <laughs> saying, I don't care whose fault it is, just stop, let's fix it. So uh, that's all by way of saying that I think there are ways where we could modernize because some of our processes take a long time and they were designed in the 19th century and maybe that's not exactly how we should operate. But I do think we need to take a deep breath and find a way where we respect the notion that listening to each other and giving each other a little bit of time with ideas really does create better decisions. You recently had a very similar thread encouraging everyone, including the, the candidates for president, to take a deep breath and have some consideration with the Green New Deal and Medicaid for All. Can you speak about that? Yeah, sure. Look, I am very proud of the fact that so many of my colleagues are putting out ideas to try to focus people on critical issues that are facing us. And there are no more critical issues than making sure every American has access to affordable, high-quality health care. Health care is a right. And there is no more pressing existential threat to us than climate change. My concern about those two proposals that you talk about is how they actually play out when you think about implementing them. And whether, let's start with the Green New Deal, um, there's a lot in the Green New Deal that isn't directly involved with how you address climate change, invest in clean energy technology, wean the country off of fossil fuels. And those additional things happen to be pretty controversial and distract us from the urgent task of addressing climate change. There are also a number of things that we might be able to build some bipartisan support. We're beginning to hear colleagues in the Senate from the other side acknowledge that climate change is real and that maybe humans had something to do with it. That sounds very elemental to me, but it's we'll take it, we'll take it right? <laughs> and, and that's frankly also because those colleagues on the other side of the aisle are hearing from their constituents. It's really important. So that's really good, but if we add a lot of other things to the mix, it's almost like trying to eat your meal all at once in one big bite. You're not going to be able to do it. And so I think it's really critical that we identify our goals here. Um, in investing in clean energy technology, um, scaling that up, working on energy efficiency, uh, the use of energy in all of these buildings all around us is an incredible um, source of carbon emissions and we've got to do better and that's one of the things that we could do almost immediately because there's so many good models. And when you get to Medicare for all, I think some people think of that proposal as just a statement that healthcare is a right and I agree with that. Um, as you guys know and I think most of the audience knows, 
My husband Tom and I have uh, two children, the oldest of whom has very severe and pervasive disabilities. Ben is a wonderful young man who has cerebral palsy, but he gets most of his nutrition from a feeding tube. He can't use his fingers to operate a keyboard or his eye gaze to do that, so he communicates with facial expression, with a lot of laughter, and with a hand raise. My family is as familiar with the strengths and flaws of the American healthcare system as anyone who has private insurance and also supports from the Medicaid program. I worry about the upfront costs of Medicare for All, and I also worry about how we transition to it without disrupting the lives of people who need healthcare the most in ways that we can't fully anticipate. We have a system that we can strengthen and improve. I would just love to get to the point where we can move from trying to defend the ACA right now in court and legislatively. You know, we keep thinking we've ended the conversation there and that it's time to move forward. Americans spoke up in the summer of 2017 and said, health care is a right, it's important to us, do not repeal the ACA. We kept that from happening, and yet we still see one effort after the next. Right now, the administration going after it in court uh, and uh, efforts to undermine the ACA um, by regulation. And we need to stop having to play defense there all the time and really work on improving the system we have and making sure that everybody can get health care and bring health care costs down, especially the cost of prescription drugs. I want to ask you about addiction, which I know is an issue that you spend a lot of time on as a governor and yeah. now as a senator. You have written a letter to the FDA asking the government to take a look at itself. Right. What was our role in this crisis? I would love to know more about what prompted that and what you hope to get from it. We are in New Hampshire still losing slightly less than 500 people a year to the opioid epidemic. And we are also seeing um, a great impact on children and families. Um, uh, first responder told me a couple of weeks ago that she responded to an overdose and went into a household and there was an 11-year-old little girl giving her mother CPR. And it was the second time that child had resuscitated her mother. Uh, so this is gonna be something with us, the ripple effects of this for a long time. Um, the concern about what the FDA did uh, is this. We know that the pharmaceutical companies, particularly Purdue Pharma, uh, really launched a marketing campaign about long-acting opioids, slow-release, long-acting opioids, oxycodone, and they worked very hard to convince healthcare providers that it was not as addictive as traditional opioids, and in fact, at various times, said it really isn't addictive. The issue with the FDA is that at one point, Purdue approached the FDA and got them to change the label so that in addition to using oxycodone for the treatment of end-of-life pain, generally cancer patients, or acute post-surgical pain, um, or post-accident pain, they got the FDA to change the label to say you could use it for chronic long-term pain. And it is not clear that the FDA had any evidence that that was an appropriate use for this drug or ran any trials that they're supposed to run before they change the label this way. So I've written a letter to the FDA saying, 
hey guys, when you change this label, after some meetings with industry, and it appears to be from news reports, we're still digging into this, that those meetings were in private. What were you doing and did you follow your own processes? Because if we didn't, we need to understand that. And then it means that the FDA has some accountability here too. And part of my job in Congress is to hold government accountable and improve it and make sure it never happens again. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm getting the signal from your staffer. As a former staffer, just I couldn't let it go. Um, so you have a hard stop. So we're going to let you go. Thank you so much. Well, look, thank you guys for doing this. And um, the one last thing I would like you to know, um, and you as a former staffer, Sarah, probably do know this, but I think grace is a very important word in this work we do together. Um, and one of the best things I do every week is go to a bipartisan prayer breakfast with my fellow senators. And I want constituents to know that because we really do try to work across the aisle. We are actually achieving some things in a bipartisan way on veterans, on opioids, on cybersecurity. And it's important to know that just because that doesn't get covered doesn't mean it's not happening. And um, my last thought upon listening to your wonderful introduction tonight was a line from Robert Frost, a wonderful New Hampshire poet, who said the only way out is through. And as Americans, we've got to remember that the critical component of our democracy is that we love each other simply because and always because we are Americans. That's all we need to know about each other. Doesn't mean we always like each other. But we share the values enshrined in our founding documents and that we've lived all these years and our job is to constantly get better and eventually one day I hope live up to those early words that our founders set out for us. And so this process of not just sorting but engaging with respect and love uh, is really, really important to the future of our country. So I thank you guys for doing this. Thank you so much. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So again, instead of sharing our thoughts on what's going on in our lives outside of politics, which is not much because we're traveling this entire month and just working, we are going to share the Q&A from our event in Portsmouth. So now we thought we'd come down here and see if there's any questions and have a little q and A. I I just want to know how you met. Um, we were sorority sisters in college. And then um, we were not, I mean, we weren't particularly close in college. It was a small school. There was only a thousand students, but... We just stayed acquainted via Facebook. It's not all bad, I guess. And then um, I actually, I started having kids and had home births, natural births, and Beth was like sort of interested in that. And so she reached out to me and we reconnected over that. And I was writing a parenting blog where I would literally be like, here's my stroller review. And then the next post would be like, here are my thoughts on Syria. Like, I just didn't care. It was my blog. I could talk about what I wanted. And Beth was like, would you ever like some guest posts? And I'm like, absolutely. And so she would come on and she wrote a post called Nuance that this was during that. Does everybody remember Cecil the Lion? God bless him. What I wouldn't give for a good Cecil the Lion controversy these days. And she wrote like, everybody chill out. Like we don't have to be all in or all out on everything. And it was so well received. And I'd been thinking about doing a podcast. And I said, would you like to do a podcast? And she said, what is a podcast? Unless I said, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out in post. And that's how Pansy Politics came about. When you were talking about um, talking with family members, particularly hard in my family, I guess for a lot of those things, it's more shocking to me that somebody in my family is defend... Like some of the things that are so bad, like it's different when it's just a political thing, but some of the things that have happened and that our president has done are so bad that I, I, 
I need them to tell me that they know that that was bad. And because they won't, I don't, I don't, I've, I've lost, I've lost some feel, respect for them. I did defriend my sister and my brother on Facebook. Oh. I totally oh, did. It's okay. I still spy We give you grace for that. I spy on him through his wife because she, and I, but, um, but, but I mean, some of the stuff is so bad. It's not a gray area. And there are some things that are not gray. Absolutely. No doubt about that. I mean, okay. So my father is a big Trump supporter. This has led to conflict between us. Um, I will say one of the big, we have a pantsuit politics book club and one of the best books we read was called the righteous mind by Jonathan Hayes. Anybody read that book? Oh, it's so well, the bookstore owners read the book, obviously. <laughs> um, it's just so good. And so his whole premise is that there are, the values are different on each side and that on the left, you primarily see a focus on care and fairness but that there are other values. There is loyalty to the group. There is respect for authority. And you see those surface more on the conservative side. But that you need both to drive the car, right? In a community, in a country, you actually do need people that are like, we should probably watch out for ourselves because this we formed this group. And so the group is important. Let's stay. Let's protect the group. You do need that as much as sometimes I'm like global citizenry. Let's just do it and take care of everybody. Um, cause I'm a bleeding heart liberal, which is what my father would call me if he was sitting right here right now. And so, but like learning that, that I just have to be like, okay, it's not that they're valueless. It's that they're different and they express themselves differently. Their values are different than mine. That's okay. That's okay. It doesn't mean they don't care. It just means in different, that's, they're going to surface in different ways. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm like, you know, when I'm pushing my father and being like, those kids are my kids age. Those are your grandkids age right there in those pictures on the border. Like push, 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 push. Um, cause I do, I do say that to him and I do kind of get in his face. Doesn't seem like a grace filled term, but that's a little bit what I do. Um, because I, it's again, it's back to that when I, I feel more responsibility to do that when we were talking about when it's like those issues that there are no gray areas in which I have to kind of, because I, because I can, because he's my dad, put myself in that space with him and be like, this isn't going to work. And like, he was actually the one during the election that was like, maybe I should unfriend you on Facebook. And I had to call him and be like, let's talk about it. We're not going to do that. Here's why. Um, because we have to talk about these things when it's hard, when it's not, when we feel like we're just, I feel like sometimes when I'm talking to my dad, we are on different planets, just different planets. But I have to, I mean, I gain so much when I kind of better understand I don't want to live on his planet, but I do want to better understand it. Um, so that's what I just kind of have to, it's just a practice. You know, I'm not going to fix it one time and I'm not going to understand it one time. And I just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. There's a life coach named Brooke Castillo who I really like. And she says this great thing about money, that money makes you more of who you are. Money doesn't make you better. It doesn't make you worse. You have more money. It just makes you more of who you are. I think Donald Trump makes us more of who we are. And so for me, the question that I've been thinking about a lot is like, everybody who listens to our podcast know that I'm a very disappointing Republican to other Republicans in 2019 because I have some really bright lines that this administration has crossed. You know, I don't feel like there's anything conservative about a lot of what this administration has done. So I disappoint those people. And when I'm having conversations with them, what I'm trying to understand is, what was in you kind of cooking that Trump turned the heat up on and, and formed? 
into this immovable thing? What got you here? And I find that the best way to figure that out is to not talk about Donald Trump. Because once you bring him to the party, it's, it's not a party over. anymore. <laughs> this is why his name ends up on everything that he owns, right? Because he just takes it over. And I don't want him taking over my personal relationships, even with people who, who feel like they're on a different planet than I am. So... What I try to do, if we're talking about family separation, right, which is where a lot of roads lead right now. A lot of people can hang for this, like, bipartisan, let's hear each other out until we get there, and then we're done. And I, I feel very strongly about that, too. So what I try to say to people is, help me understand your thoughts on immigration. Not should the president have done this or not. Not should the Department of Justice and the DHS, not, let's, let's just step way back from what's going on right here. Who should get to come to America? Under what circumstances should they get to come to America? Under what circumstances should I get to move out of America? If I want to go to Canada, what should I have to do to get there? And just strip away the frenzy of the current moment so that we all put our defenses down a little bit and I'm listening, and I'm feeling curious, and it's hard, and it takes a lot of patience, and you don't get it done in one conversation. But it does tell the person, I'm still interested in you, even though you don't see eye to eye. And then there's a point, you know, where you have to, you have to be honest with people, and sometimes that can feel like shaming them. I try to make it not, but I have a, a family friend who's been in my life since I was 16 years old who says terrible things about immigrants, terrible, and is the kind of person that if your car breaks down, he will stop for a stranger and help. And so I don't understand the disconnect there, and I just have to say that to him sometimes. I love you. I don't understand why this feels different to you than the person whose car is broken down on the side of the road. And when you say this, I don't hear any truth in that, you know, and, and we just, we just keep working through that. But I do start and end with, I love you because I need him to know that, or I can't expect him to move. Whatever baked that cake that Trump formed in him, if I say I can't be your friend anymore because of this, it gets harder, not softer. I was going to say to you, that's a phrase Beth uses a lot that I'd steal. I don't see the truth in that. Um, also, and just just go with me here. Did anybody ever watch TLC's Sister Wives about the polygamy family? Ah, I got some hands. Okay, one of my favorite things they ever said on that show was, they believe polygamy is a religious practice because it forces them to bump into each other. When you got, like, other wives, there's, like, lots of just bumping up against each other as humans and be like, you get on my nerves, you make me jealous. And they believe that's a spiritual practice because it roughs, rubs their rough edges off. And I just, I'm not a polygamist and I'm not encouraging you to become polygamist, but I do believe our job as human beings is to bump up against each other. And that is not always pleasant, but it is so important. And I feel like there's probably like a granite state application I can make here, but I'm too cold and I can't think it through. So I'm sorry. I'm a little bit older than most people in the audience, and just looking back, I haven't seen such division in our country since the late 60s or 70s. I'm sure some of you remember during the Vietnam War. And I, I think some of it has to do with media 
and I did an ex sort of experiment myself. I, a year ago, I, I, on Facebook, I, anyone who said anything on the left or the right got unfollowed. And all of a sudden, I started seeing births and vacations and graduations, mostly what I see. And so my question to you is, you know, how much of this is being augmented by Twitter's, Twitter feeds and Facebooks and mainstream and Fox? So much of it. I think it's not just that the way personalities, like with that we're talking about politics on social media, but we're also letting those algorithms give us our news, which is really banana. We go to college campuses and we're like, where do you get your news? And they're like, Snapchat. I'm like, no, false. Not because, I mean, I don't like social media, but because that's an algorithm and an algorithm is going to respond to emotion. What makes everybody really mad? What makes everybody really sad? Let's show you that. Um, one of my favorite things to remind myself about the media environment all the time is Krista Tibbet, who's the host of On Being. She's fabulous. Oh, she's the best. She says, I have to remind myself that the headlines are not the full story. Not just of that story, of our story. They're not the only thing happening in the world. But if you are engaged and you're getting fed an algorithm of news, or if you're on cable news, particularly if you're on Fox News, like there's actually a documentary called Fox News Brainwashed My Dad. Has anybody heard of this? Yeah, that's like a real movie. This girl did a whole movie on that. I think it's amazing. Um, and so I think that that, that the way that it's being filtered to us, as opposed to like everybody sits down and Walker, Walter Cronkite tells everybody the same thing, is very different than what we're experiencing right now. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think that has really inflamed and like hardened those opinions. I think it's really important that you see the baby pictures and the graduation posts too, because the other problem is your political friend like tends to shy away from the baby pictures and the graduate. Like life becomes. I am a press secretary for my party. And so everything that happens politically, I will now share with you my opinion on it. And a part of our book, that really the hardest part of our book to write is the chapter where we talk about keeping politics in its place. Because it is so important, but it is not everything. And we cannot have relationships with one another if it becomes everything. We can't. And so I think the issue with social media is... I don't think it is the problem, but I think it is a tool that because we don't fully understand it and because we're the beta test of it, is contributing to the problem in ways that we don't fully understand. And I think eventually social media could be a tool that helps us out of this. We have some really wonderful interactions with people on social media. Now, that is because we kind of have defined a space, right? We got a community of people who spend hours with us a week. So they know what we're about. They know what we're not about. And when they come to us on social media, we have seen the unicorn of the internet where someone is a jerk and then apologizes, you know? And it's a beautiful thing. And then to see other people forgive that person, online, right? So people have the capacity to do well on social media, but I think it takes practice and intention and thought, and those are not words that we typically think about when we think about Facebook and Twitter. And so I think you have to wrap a community around that for it to work well. Well, thank you all so much for being here. 
Thank you so much to Tom at River Run. Thank you to the New Hampshire Women's Foundation. Thank you to Senator Hassan and her team. We loved this event. If you would like to know more about having events with us, you can send me an email or Elise at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, keep it new and still. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.